Amen. Thanks, brother. Um, as Randy prayed, my name is Tad Skinner. I'm one of the pastors here, and glad to be uh, with you this morning. Kids, you can be dismissed to the Gospel Project uh, all the way up through fifth grade. And there'll be some people at the back waiting to take you over there, I believe. So we're going to be in uh, Colossians again. We're in the middle of, of a series on uh, the letter of Paul to the Colossians. So go ahead and turn there, chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. And that's on page 572 of the Blue Bibles uh, under the seats in front of you. So fun passage. Uh, today we get to talk about big redwood trees and circumcision and the Roman legion. And uh, one of those things is in the passage explicitly, no pun intended. Uh, one is not in the passage at all, and uh, one is just related to the passage. So hopefully they'll all fit together for us today. And of course, we'll be talking about the centrality of Christ. Uh, that's why we're here. Hopefully we'll see that we must continue on in Christ. So if you'll ask anyone, they'll tell you that it's really difficult to win a championship. Really difficult to win a championship of any kind, whether it's high school sports or high school music competition, uh, nationally, internationally. Really difficult to win and to be the best at anything. And to be the best, it requires a commitment to a set of core values. Uh, to be a good team, uh, to commit to um, a good work ethic, to uh, listen to your coaches, your directors, your supporters, your encouragers. Uh, to be the best requires that commitment to those core values. Lots of things go into winning a competition and being the best. Or at least I've been told that. You'll have to ask somebody else if that's actually true. So, but ask anyone who's done it, who's actually done it, and won a championship before, and they'll tell you that as hard as it is to win the first time, it's, it's that much harder to win the second time. Those that have tried and failed will say that it's easy to drift away from those core values. It's easy to get complacent. It's easy to stop doing the little things that made you successful in the first place. And in a similar manner, so it is with our Christian walk. So those that are believers, how were you saved? How did you come to know Christ? Well, likely it was through reaching an end of yourself. You rightly understood that you were in need of a Savior, that you were a sinner. And so you reached out and asked God to help you that you couldn't make right your wrongs in and of yourself, that you needed an, an external solution for an internal problem. And for many of those, many of us who became believers, who are believers, the first few months after we became a believer was, was a time of tremendous growth. Uh, lots of victory over temptation, uh, lots of desire and, and really hunger for God's word, hunger to share his word with other people. That's not true for everyone, but for most people, that's true. Once you become a Christian, you're, you're that way. So why then is it that we so often struggle greatly as believers as we get older in the faith? Well, I think it's the same reason that it's so difficult to win a championship the second time. We get away from those core values. We get away from those things that made us successful in the first place. We get complacent. We turn away from our first love. We drift from those core values. This is what Paul speaks to in our passage today. So after a really long intro, believe it or not, the past few weeks in Colossians has just been Paul introducing uh, his, his letter. We get now into the meat of Colossians, and he'll stay here uh, to chapter 4. This is the central message, the focal point that will drive the rest of the letter. So 
Chelsea Shelton is going to come up and read for us. Again, Colossians chapter 2. Chelsea's one of our uh, youth leaders and uh, just got back from youth camp uh, a little over a week ago. So grateful for you and the ways you serve. So Chelsea, please read for us. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Thank you. A lot more love for Chelsea this gathering than in last gathering. So, all right, a really rich passage and a lot of familiar truth, helpful information for us. So notice that Paul starts by using the transition word, therefore. So he's saying, I've given thanks for the gospel's work in you. I've lifted up the name of Christ and reminded you of his preeminence, as, as Brandon preached a couple weeks ago. I've reminded you of my labors and efforts for you as a minister of the gospel, as Mike shared last week. Therefore, now let me build on that foundation by teaching you further about Christ. And so Paul begins this main teaching section. Here he lays out his thesis statement uh, for this, this largest section of Colossians. And let me read verses 6 and 7 because we'll be here for a while again. It says, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So let's take a look at what that means. So first, let's remember how we receive Jesus. We didn't receive him only as Jesus. We didn't receive him only as Christ. We didn't receive him only as prophet or only as priest or only as king or only as our Lord or only as salvation. We received him as Christ Jesus the Lord. I think Paul in these four words here is trying to, to help us to capture the fullness of all that we received in Christ. So we don't have some small version of Jesus. He's not incomplete. He's the Lord over our future. He's the Lord over our children's future. He's the Lord over your career, your workplace, the Lord over your health, your children's health. He's the Lord over all, as, as Mike preached last week. He is all that we need. He is the promised Messiah, the one who was promised all the way back in Genesis 3 and hinted at and talked about all the way up in the Old Testament up until the Gospels when he arrived. He's better than any prophet. He's more satisfactory than any priest. He's greater than any king. He is the one who has saved us from all of our sin, and he is our Lord. 
He's the one worthy of our submission. And he has all knowledge and all power, and yet he's humble in spirit. He is gracious and merciful. And to use the, the old and now new vernacular, he is gentle and lowly. Who else would we submit to? But we all too often bend the knee and call others Lord. And prime among those we call Lord is ourselves. We all know our flaws, at least I know my flaws well enough to know what kind of idiot I am and why I am not worthy of being Lord. Perhaps you know that as well, uh, what kind of idiot I am, but also how, how, how much your flaws prove that you're an idiot. Perhaps you know that as well and that you are in no business of being called Lord either. So why in the world will we act as though we're Lord? And isn't this why we worry, just as an aside? When we worry, we take the crown of God's lordship over the hard things of our life. And we place that crown on our own head. We scheme and we angst and we wring our hands trying to solve our problems, problems that were not ours in the first place because we're not Lord. He is the Lord over our problems. Anyway, we do build our lives around ourselves and around others rather than around the Lord Jesus Christ. Both ancient history and recent history, as well as our own personal experiences, will, will tell us that any, any church that's built on any man other than the God-man, Jesus Christ, is destined to fail. Any organization or structure, any, any corporation, any individual life that is built on any man other than the God-man is destined to fail. Only Jesus Christ, our Lord, is worthy of our life. And further, we see at the end of verse 6 and into 7 that the affirmation of Jesus Christ as Lord should lead to changed behavior. So look at verse 6 again. It says that we're to walk in Christ. And how are we to do that? We're to do that just as we received him. So we don't add anything to Christ Jesus the Lord, and we don't take anything away from Christ Jesus the Lord either. Now, if you've been a believer in Christ for a while now, how are you walking in him? Think about that. You came to Christ humbly, knowing that you were a sinner in need of a Savior. Do you still walk in that way, or have you added your own set of rules? In the next passage next week, Paul is going to talk a little bit about legalism, which is just adding on to what Christ has already done for us, getting our salvation or our righteousness from things that, that are in addition to Christ. But for now, are you adding some special rules that make uh, you feel like you are righteous in your own eyes rather than walking in what you received in Christ? But neither are we to take anything away from Christ either. It's very easy to become complacent in our Christian life, isn't it? Very easy for us to think that God will forgive and understand when we sin in this way or that, that he won't really hold us accountable. But now that we're saved and secure, we can go back to being our own Lord again. Uh, there's a saying that somebody, somebody coined a phrase a long time ago that God enjoys forgiving sin and I enjoy committing it. Now that shouldn't be true, but I think we live our lives sometimes as though that is true. But we must not add to nor subtract from how we received Christ. So Jesus is not just the beginning for the Christian. He's not someone to be left behind once we've become mature. 
Now, Christ is received, and he's continuously received over and over as we recognize our need for him. We don't outgrow Christ. So look again at verse 6. It doesn't say to walk away from Christ. It doesn't say to walk apart from Christ. We, we all know that. But it also doesn't say to walk beside Christ. It doesn't even say to walk with him. It says to walk in him. So how do we do that? Well, we do that because he dwells within us. Look at verse 7. It says, verse 7 tells us four things about walking in Christ. It says we're rooted. It says we're built up. It says we're established, and it says we're abounding. So Paul doesn't make the English teachers here happy as he mixes his metaphors, but uh, let's take a look at what he's telling us. He says, first, that we are rooted. So ever been to California, seen the giant redwood trees? Uh, many of you have before. At least you've seen pictures of them. They're giant, massive, uh, uh, incredibly tall, 360 feet tall, taller than than Big Ben, taller than the Statue of Liberty. How in the world do they stand so tall without toppling over? Well, it's their root system, right? They have a massive root system, 90,000 cubic feet of soil, all the way from uh, Mill Avenue to the edge of the parking lot, 90,000 cubic feet of soil. Redwoods have a great foundation, and they are not easily shaken or destroyed. They can withstand the strongest winds and the fiercest flames. Now, if that's the case for them, then how much more so is it for those of us who are rooted in Christ? There's nothing stronger or greater or more secure. Paul also says that, says we're rooted, but he also says that we're built up. So he's, he's mixing his metaphors, but it's, it's really helpful to us. Rooted refers to what's invisible, what's beneath the ground. It's there, but we can't always see it. It's what Christ has already done for us, what he already did when we were saved by him. We're secure and safe in him. We will be delivered to him in eternity solely because of the work of Christ, what he has done for us. So notice the contrast. Rooted is a once and for all planting of the Christian in Christ. And built up is actually in the present tense. So it's indicating continual or ongoing growth. So why are we built up? Well, we're built up so that we might be established in the faith. So whereas rooted refers to what's invisible and what Christ has done, built up refers to the ability to stand tall during the storms of life. So we know that we're going to face tragedies and uh, calamities and sorrow and struggles and all sorts of difficulties in life. Life is hard. And built up refers to the ability to be identified as a believer when we face those struggles. To live a life that bears witness to him no matter what life brings to us. So how are we built up in Christ? Well, we're, we're built up in the same way in which we received Christ. We're built up by hearing his word, by obeying his voice. And then the result of that is that we, we read scripture, we, we pray to him, we spend time in fellowship with other believers, we, we give sacrificially, we, we fast so that we might be focused on him. Those are the ways that we're built up. I was uh, encouraged recently, I was talking to one of our members, uh, some of you know Glenna Denton, uh, many of you don't know her, 
she's been a member longer than probably most of the people in this room, member of Church on Mill, longer than most of the people in this room have been alive. Uh, she's homebound now, can't attend our services on a regular basis, but I was talking to her on the phone recently, and she was sharing, she's, she's been a believer a long time, uh, recently turned 92, and she uh, was telling me that though she's read the Bible before, probably every passage, she's never read in her entire lifetime, has never read from Genesis to Revelation. And she decided, I want to do that. So she started reading in Genesis. She's in Hebrews now, uh, almost there to the end, uh, reading every night before she goes to bed. What an encouragement that was to me. I hope that's an encouragement to you. Someone who is 92 years old uh, and is still being built up in Christ. So, Glenna, thank you for that lesson for us as, you, as you're watching uh, on the live stream. So why? Why then? Why are we built up? Well, we're built up in Christ so that we might stand tall when our faith is attacked at work. We're built up in Christ so that we might stand tall when one of our family members gets that diagnosis that changes everything. We're built up in Christ so that we might stand tall when friends push us away because we won't compromise our morals. We're built up in Christ so that we might stand tall when our reputation is challenged. We're built up in Christ so that at the age of 92, we might be prepared for whatever the Lord has for us next. We're rooted deep in Christ because Christ has saved us. And we're built up in Christ so that we can stand strong during the storms of life through our obedience to Christ. So rooted and built up. And next is that we're established in our faith. So when we're rooted deep in Christ and we're, and we're uh, built up strong in the faith in Christ, then we're, uh, we can be assured that nothing will really shake our faith. We still might be battered by storms, but we won't be knocked over. Um, years ago, I was uh, going through, um, I was at ASU and my school program that I was in, uh, I was on the fourth floor. Uh, that was where the school program was, so I spent a lot of time on the fourth floor. And at one corner of the building, there were three or four palm trees down at the bottom. And so I, you could look out the windows, and you could, you'd have to look up to see the palm fronds. They're still taller than that fourth floor. And when the monsoon storms came, they would sway back and forth and back and forth. It was amazing that those palm trees didn't fall over. And perhaps you've seen something like that, or you've seen it in... Uh, videos or in Florida if you've ever been there during a hurricane and you see those palm trees that are standing up against those gale force, force winds. It's amazing that those things don't fall over. In a similar manner, we are often shaken by the storms of life. But the storms don't knock us over because we're rooted deep and because we're built up in Christ. We're established in the faith. So finally here, Paul tells us the result of all of this. We're, we're rooted, we're built up, we're uh, established, and now we're abounding in thanksgiving. So thanksgiving for what? Thanksgiving for Christ. Thanksgiving for all that he has done for us. Think back to when you first became a believer. What were you thankful for? You were thankful for forgiveness of your sin, that the debt had been paid. You were thankful that you had a new family, uh, that you were able to have freedom from the temptations. The temptations that, that you faced every day were, were more easy uh, to, or 
to, uh, to fight. We're thankful for all of those things, and we should be a thankful people because we are in Christ. It's all because of Him, and we should be abounding in thanksgiving as a result of all that He has done for us. So these are the two key verses, really, of, of the entire letter of Colossians. We'll keep referring back to these ideas through the next several weeks. It's because we are in Christ that we have victory and rest and joy and peace and every spiritual blessing because we're in Christ. So continue on in Christ. Now let's turn to the the next section of of our passage for today, beginning in verse 8. We see, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So we've just seen the truth about who we are in verses 6 and 7, and now we see what the church at Colossae was struggling with, what their own struggles were. The, The problem that they were having is that they were forgetting that they were in Christ, forgetting that they're rooted and built up and established and abounding. And and really, isn't that our problem as well? There's really nothing new under the sun. These the same types of struggles, just a different zip code, a different cultural twist, a different day or year on the calendar, but the same problems that Christians have been having ever since the beginning. We forget that we're in Christ. We chase after that shiny new penny only to find that it's shadows and dust. It's empty. And Paul's saying, don't be deceived. Don't go after the counterfeit. Uh, Many of you are familiar with the uh, uh, phishing emails. You'll get an email from the Nigerian prince who uh, has, uh, he's the heir to millions of dollars, and if you'll just give him your bank account, then he'll deposit the money and he'll be able to get the money out of his country and he'll leave you with a sweet reward. So what's, what's not to like about that? Well, there's plenty not to like because it's fake, it's phony. It's, it's really, it's ridiculous. And yet people fall for that. And why do we fall for that? Well, it's because it's the promise of something that we think we need, we, that we think we want. We want those, those, uh, that easy life of riches that this Nigerian prince is, is promising us. But we have to remember that we are in Christ and we have all we need. God is our Father, and we are the heir to the one who has, has everything. Uh, makes the person with the riches, the most riches on the planet, let's say Elon Musk, makes, makes Elon Musk look like his riches are just ashes in comparison to what Christ has for us. So what are the philosophies and empty deceits and human traditions and elemental spirits that are so alluring to us to it today? Before we get to that, uh, let's define some terms. So philosophy means love of wisdom. And there's a lot of love of wisdom out there today. We, we don't necessarily call it that, but we love ourselves some wisdom. And the foolish wisdom of this day seems to be that everyone is wise. This person can be wise in, in this way, and this person can be wise in a completely contradictory way, but yet they're both wise. There is no standard for wisdom today. 
The foolish wisdom is that everyone can do whatever they want to do. The foolish wisdom is that our feelings are all that matter. That there is no objective truth. I could be wrong on, on this, but I think it was Francis Schaeffer that said uh, decades ago that the Holy Trinity of the Holy Father, the Holy Son, and the Holy Spirit has been replaced by a new Holy Trinity of holy wants, holy needs, and holy emotions. Now, if that was true decades ago, it's certainly even more so true today. The philosophy that Paul refers to is the love of self-wisdom. And empty deceits refers to the end result of anything other than Christ. If we place our life in anything other than Christ, it's ultimately going to be found to be meaningless and empty. So there's empty deceits, human traditions, and then there's elemental spirits. And I, I think when our, our minds, when we hear that word, our minds automatically go to things like Harry Potter or some comic book imaginary stuff. That's fictional, of course, but we do need an understanding about spiritual battles, don't we? We, we just went through the, uh, the book of Daniel recently, and we saw a glimpse of what goes on behind the scenes in some of those spiritual battles. We need to understand a little bit about that. As one pastor said, distinguishing fake news from good news is nothing less than a matter of spiritual life and death. Uh, I think it used to be that the most deceptive philosophies that Christians were, were prone to fall into were things like Mormonism or um, uh, the prosperity gospel. Now, those are, of course, still a very real threat to us. Mormonism teaches that we're not just in Christ, but that we can become Christ. It appeals to our pride that we can become Christ ourselves. And the prosperity gospel is still a threat. We are too easily drawn to the false teaching that God exists for us, that he exists only to make us healthy or wealthy or happy. Or the false teaching that God will bless us if we can just rise to some uh, moral standard, then we'll be showered with wealth. Those are empty deceits, human traditions, elemental spirits. Still a threat today. But the main deceptive philosophies of today, for many in the church, have more to do with a false social gospel. So ideas like critical race theory or intersectionality or uh, identity politics are all the rage in some section segments of the capital C church. So to be clear, there are some small pieces of truth found in those fall, false gospels. But where they attempt to explain who we are, or they attempt to explain what our problems are, or what the solutions to our problems are, or, or what we ought to do then in light of those solutions to our problems, they're not at all in line with Scripture. They're empty deceits. But there's an allure to this narrative. It's the wisdom of this age that we're in. And it appeals to our emotions. False gospels like these tell us that the solutions to our problems are found in new, new social structures rather than being found in a Savior who died to save us from our sin. Those false gospels are very enticing right now. Empty deceits, human traditions, and elemental spirits. But all of these false gospels are not according to Christ. And further, verse 9 gives us the answer to all these empty deceits. These things are empty, but Christ 
instead fills us. We are fulfilled in Christ. So don't be deceived. The sufficiency and centrality of Christ is the critical key principle of the true gospel. Any false gospel won't have the sufficiency of Christ at at its center. And because of that, these false gospels will not be sufficient to deal with whatever might be ailing us. Only Christ can solve all of our needs. Now, if I had handed out to everybody who entered the room at the beginning when you, when you came in, if I'd handed you a, a half sheet of purple construction paper with a picture of my dog stapled to the center of it and in orange crayon the number seven on every corner, and I had referred to that $20 bill that I handed you when you came in, no one for a second would have thought that that was a $20 bill, right? You know the difference between purple construction paper with my dog stapled to I hope you do, and a $20 bill. But counterfeit gospels aren't so easily identifiable. So Paul's saying, don't be deceived. Don't be led astray. The way to avoid deception is to know the real thing. So know Christ and all of his sufficiency. Know him in his fullness in order to not be deceived. And this section of Scripture ends with uh, the sweet reminder that we are filled in Him. Uh, What an amazing truth. One one author that I read used an example of us being like a mason jar. So a jar like what you see on the screen. We're like a mason jar, and Christ is like the ocean. You can take a mason jar to the beach, and you can fill it with the Pacific Ocean. And that jar will be full of the Pacific Ocean. But yet not the fullness of the ocean is in that jar. God is infinite, and he holds the fullness of deity. Christ holds the fullness of deity. We can't, but we are full of his fullness. So when we, when we become believers in Christ, we are transformed. We are filled in an instant with his fullness. We are deeply rooted in Christ. And if we are full of him, then how can you ever want more than that? The way to be full is to continue on in Christ. All right, our our last section for this morning, it it gets a little bit weird here as we turn to uh, verses 11 through 15, talking about a circumcision made without human hands and things like that. Let's take a look again. So in, in verse 11, it says, In him also you who were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So Paul's using two metaphors here. He's using circumcision as a metaphor for the death of Christ, and he's using baptism as a metaphor for the resurrection of Christ. So two metaphors, circumcision and baptism. So one of those things our pastors perform at Church on Mill, and one of those things our our pastors very happily don't perform at Church on Mill. So very briefly... 
Circumcision was a sign that the Hebrew people, uh, back in the Old Testament, that they belonged to God. He removed flesh as a symbol of our sin needing to be removed. So when Jesus died, that was the ultimate removal of sin. All sin was placed on Jesus. Jesus became sin so that we might have righteousness. And so through him, our sin was removed. That's what Paul is stating here as he refers to the circumcision of Christ, the removal of our sin, that through his death, all of our sin was removed. So further, this business about circumcision being linked to crucifixion or being linked to death may seem odd, but it's, it's really not out of the blue. We see a couple of references sort of to that in Deuteronomy 10:16. Moses writes to his people to circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. And the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 9 distinguishes between those who are physically circumcised and those who are, are spiritually circumcised. It says in verse 25, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert, who cut the corners of their hair, whatever that means. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. So no one knew how that was supposed to happen. How do you circumcise the heart? No one knew how that was to happen until Christ. Because Jesus died and because we are now his, his death is our death. We are clean and made holy. The old has been cut away. And we've been given a new life. We've been made alive. We are who we are because of what Christ has done for us. But further than that, because we're identified with Christ, we participate not just in his death, but also in his resurrection. Paul uses the analogy of baptism. We're more familiar with that. Uh, we understand now that baptism today, it's an identification with Christ. So just as Jesus was buried and he rose from the grave, uh, we too, as we go under the water, as we're plunged beneath the water, as we sing about, we're risen to walk in new life. It's a symbol of that identification with Christ and his resurrection. So we were dead to sin, but we were made alive through identification with Christ in his death and resurrection. And we get to participate in all of the benefits of Christ's death and resurrection. This is the sufficiency of Christ. This is the fullness of Christ. We have all we need. And Paul lists out just two of the benefits, just two of the benefits that we have for those of us who are in Christ. The first is forgiveness. Uh, look at verses 13 through 15. He hits on this several times. Without Christ, we are dead, and we are less than penniless. In fact, we are debtors. We owe a debt that we cannot pay on our own. But in Christ, we are alive. Our debt is paid. And it's as though we're an heir to the fortunes of the wealthiest person who ever lived. Our debt is paid, our life is restored, and all of that is because we are in Christ. And the best part is that we didn't have to do anything to deserve that or earn that. We couldn't do anything. This is all because of what Christ has done for us. And in line with that, but also even more than that, is that we have victory. 
That's another benefit Paul references in verse 15. And he, he talks about it in a way that, that would be totally understandable to the people of his time, but I think goes over our head because uh, we just don't live uh, the way that they lived 2,000 years ago. So let me try to explain. In Paul's time, when the Roman legion would return in victory, they would enter the city and the vanquished would go before the victors. So the conquered would enter into the city in their tatters of clothes, in shame and humiliation. Everything that they had had been taken from them. Great humiliation. And then they would be summarily killed in front of everyone. That sounds awful. That is awful. Uh, what an what a ugly, terrible thing that is. Paul's not commending this, but he's using it as an analogy to help us to see the beauty of Christ. Now, I don't know how bad the, the enemies of Rome actually were. Perhaps they were really awful, uh, terrible people. But I do know that our enemies, the enemies of the, the Christian, the enemies of the believer, are truly evil and truly awful. Think about death. Think about sin. Think about the devil. Those are the enemies of the Christian. And Christ has put all of those to shame. He's triumphed over them. And just like the Romans, uh, the people of the Roman Empire shared in the victory over those uh, that, that uh, fought the battle. We too, as Christians, we share in the victory of the battle that Christ has already fought and already won. But that victory isn't just for there and then. It isn't just for eternity. It's also for here and for now. So are you struggling with pride? Are you struggling with lust? Are you struggling with anger? Are you struggling with fear or laziness? We can have victory over any sin because of the victory of Christ, because we are in Christ. He has disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he's put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. God is greater than our sin, and he has forgiven and he is victorious. Friends, I hope that you've seen from this passage today that Christ is key, that we must continue on in Christ. And if you haven't received Christ, then you truly are deceived by a counterfeit. You are deceived by the philosophies of this world. And everything that we've been talking about that, that Christ gives us and is, is not yours but it can be today. You can be rooted in Christ. You can be built up to withstand the storms of this life. You can be established in your faith. You can be abounding in thanksgiving. You can have the forgiveness for all of your sin. You can have the victory over the temptations and the struggles that you, you face every day in your life. All of those things can be yours today if you would turn to Him. I'll be around briefly afterwards and then now, there's lots of people in the room that would love to talk with you as well, so I would encourage you to speak with them on your way out. Don't leave today without having that victory that we can have, that forgiveness that we can have in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, for Jesus. We thank you for uh, the gift of who he is, and what he has done for us. We thank you that all of these things that we cannot do on our own, that we cannot have on our own, that we can have 
because we are, as believers, are in Christ. And so, God, I pray that we would not turn away from the way that we received Christ, but that we would continue on in the faith in the same manner in which we receive Christ, that we would continue to recognize our need for him. God, convict us of that and help us to live our lives that way. And for those that are in the room that are not believers in you, God, we, we ask that, that they would uh, not leave this room today without making that, um, uh, coming to that, that realization of who they need to be, of, of their need for you, that they are sinners in need of a Savior. God, we thank you that you are the one who saves. We pray that you would do that today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.